Welcome to the Think Law Podcast with Colin Seal, where we challenge you to imagine a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good, and equip you with the powerful but practical tools to make that possible in our schools, in leadership, and in our homes. Hey everyone, it's Colin Seal, and I'm excited to have you tune in to another episode of the Think Law Podcast. Today's episode is a really special one that's a little bit different than some of the episodes that we've done in the past, but I think it's really necessary. Today's episode's question is why race must be a part of critical thinking about any real world problem. Race must be a part of critical thinking about any real world problem. Now, some of you might be like, wait, race? This is supposed to be a podcast about critical thinking at home or in in our schools and in our leadership positions and organizations and businesses. And like, we were talking about critical thinking. How do we get to talking about race with critical thinking? Well, let me back you up for a second. When we look at the critical thinking framework that Think Law uses and that really helps to kind of pull this together to move critical thinking from something that's super abstract to a much more concrete concept, remember we always talk about it as a set of a few things. When we talk about a set of skills, right, being able to look at things in different perspectives, asking questions to get information, like all these different critical thinking skills, analysis, interpretation, yes. But then we have these other things, these dispositions, those habits and mindsets of critical thinking. How likely is it that you're going to apply critical thinking throughout your life, throughout your career, throughout your academics, throughout any problem that you're facing? And we also want to make sure that we're doing this in a way that's very context-dependent, that you can shift across different types of analysis. But most importantly... If you look at the Thinking Like a Lawyer book, um, if you look at the way that we've kind of laid this out, there's a very important piece that ties this all together, which is, at the end of the day, we are not just focused in giving kids and giving parents and giving adults the tools to just be right. We want to make sure that we're guiding them in a way that's going to help them do right. And here's where race becomes a very important piece of any sort of critical thinking analysis, particularly with world-world problems that we face in the United States. And again, you're like, race. What does race have to do with it? Well, let's take this the same way we would with the common think-law learning strategy, which is called root cause analysis. And some of you might have seen this in one of our previous episodes where we talk about how to disagree without being disagreeable. This idea of like getting to that why and asking why several times can help us dig down and understand what some underlying issues are. And I'm going to make it really clear through this process why race is so commonly an issue that we cannot ignore when it comes to critical thinking about any problem. And make sure that you have the tools to start to include this in your analysis in a much more proactive way. So let's take a topic that is kind of a challenging one in our country in particular, which is healthcare. Talk about healthcare. Why not talk about the COVID-19 pandemic? It's something that's impacting so many of us in so many powerful ways. So let's talk about this. We're at a point where we have over 100,000 people in this country who have passed away due to this virus and complications related to this virus. What does race have to do with it? Well. Turns out that we've got something here that disproportionately impacts 
people of color generally, African-Americans specifically. And in fact, when you start going into the data a little bit deeper, you look in Louisiana, we've got African-Americans that are 70% of all of these COVID-19 deaths. Mind you, we do not have a national database showing the deaths of everyone by race, okay? But in Louisiana, where they are keeping track of it, 70% of the COVID-19 deaths are from African-Americans. African-Americans are only 33%. So you're talking about over double the population in terms of overrepresentation. In Michigan, you're talking about 14% of the population representing 40% of the deaths. Again, we're talking about more than doubling it. In Chicago, 56% of the deaths are African-Americans and only 30% of the population. And in New York, right? New York has been the epicenter of this pandemic. Black people are twice as likely as white people to die from the coronavirus. So when we start thinking about these numbers, when we start realizing that in black U.S. counties, so in counties in the United States that are mostly majority African-American, their infection rate is three times higher. Their death rate is six times higher than predominantly white counties. And you start thinking, okay, well, what does race have to do with it? Maybe it's just diet. Maybe it's just, you know, exercise or whatever have you. Maybe it's genetics. But it turns out that it's really not about the underlying health conditions. It's really not about some underlying biological difference that doesn't exist. What does matter here is the conditions of life. When you start looking at the idea that a lot of African-Americans are living in areas, I'm just going to take this one thing, forget about unemployment, forget about access to education, forget about whatever else. We're just going to focus on one thing, high housing density. Because one of the big risks associated with increasing your uh, likelihood of becoming infected is living in areas with high housing density. Well, what's race got to do with it? Why can't they just go and live in different places? Interesting. Interesting you ask that. So when we start realizing that after the Great Depression, we've had this moment where uh, they realize they just can't give out loans willy-nilly, and they've got to put some standards, right? This national bank system, we've got to put some standards behind how we determine risk. And yeah, there's certain things around investment of homes and quality of living and, you know, average price value that would help you figure out whether you would have an A color code or a D rating. And your D rating was conspicuously labeled red, which is where that term red line comes from. But it turns out that a deciding factor in so many urban areas across our country had to do with the ethnic and racial identity of who lived in those neighborhoods. So it was fairly common. And you could actually go to an interesting website that talks about and shows you maps of these areas, dsl.richmond.edu. You can go to this website and see dsl.richmond.edu and see how this all played out. You would see that neighborhoods that got redlined would have in the notes. This area is experiencing, quote, an infiltration of Negroes. This neighborhood is populated with the serving class of whites, Negroes, and Mexicans. In other areas, you would say it was extremely undesirable because the largest concentration of Mexicans in its community were there. So we start thinking about this idea of like, now you got folks in this neighborhood that can't own homes, okay? Systemically denied access to own homes. 
And now we start thinking, okay, well, what does race have to do with it? Because they can just go to another neighborhood. No one says that if they're stuck there, they can just move. But race has everything to do with it. Because we're asking why we're we going a little bit deeper down this root cause analysis for a public policy issue to help you understand why race cannot be separated from any real world problem. There's this thing called restrictive covenants. If I have a house and I live in a homeowners association, right, part of me transferring a home to somebody is they've got to agree, right? They've got to pull their weeds. They can't paint their houses zebra color. They've got to have that kind of pale, disgusting, monotone thing that everyone in my neighborhood has in front of their house for their paint. But during these times, a really popular restrictive covenant wasn't just about making sure you didn't paint your house zebra color. Wasn't sure just about making sure you didn't have weeds growing all over your front yard. It was also this idea that you can only have this house if you promise that you'll never deed it over to a black person. Because just like painting your house zebra, you put a black person in here, we start getting an infiltration of Negroes, then boom, our neighborhood gets closer and closer to that dreaded red line. So we start thinking about this issue that started with healthcare. And we recognize that it's so deeply intertwined with complex issues that revolve around race. You start looking at education in this country and you start realizing that every single state has a constitutional guarantee to give public education Look at the history of why those guarantees are in there. It was to make sure that blacks actually got an education. When we start thinking about economic prosperity, I'm like, well, just go out and just start your own business, build your own. Well, it's easy to build your own if you've got wealth. But if it turns out that you couldn't have wealth in your community generationally because you weren't able to own land in your own community because of these red lines, because of this criteria that was placed based off of who lived there, then where are you going to get the wealth from to start your business? And I can tell you, more important than education, more important than healthcare, more important than economic success, is another basic human right, which is literally the right to be a living and breathing human with the ability to live and breathe freely. As I am recording this podcast, I can tell you that I do not feel free. I have never felt totally free from the time I was 16 years old. Because at 16 years old, I remember riding my bicycle home, lived in Brooklyn, New York. I was right around the corner from my home, and some sirens pulled me over and asked me to get off my bike, threw me against the wall, and started like patting me down asking me questions, who I was, where I was going, where I was coming from. And I remember this feeling just a few months after Amadou Dialu had been shot 41 times for pulling out his wallet, of just being completely petrified, feeling 100% dehumanized, feeling so afraid of what might happen if this interaction went, uh, went, went wrong or I said the wrong thing or I, I, I said something that came off as potentially rude or you know 
uh, too agitated. So I, I remember forcing a smile on my face and yes, sir. Yes, officer. Yes, sir. I, I think about every time I've ever been pulled over the way that my hands freeze on the steering wheel. And it's almost like this talk that I've had so many times from my uncles, right? Well, I'm just everything like not raising my voice, turning down my music. Officer, is it okay if I grab my wallet? I won't make any sudden movements. I'm just going to slowly reach to grab my wallet so you can see my license. And I think about that. And I can tell you I don't feel free. But I can tell you I don't feel free goes beyond my interactions with the police. I can tell you I don't feel free because right now, at the time that I'm recording this podcast, we are under curfew in Phoenix, Arizona at 8 p.m. And I know that in my neighborhood, in the suburbs, as an African-American male, in a suburb where there are not many African-American males running around my neighborhood. I know that if I have on a tank top and basketball shorts and I need to go get something from the grocery store, I have to change into a proper polo shirt because I don't want to appear to be too threatening to folks. And I know that on this next door app where people are afraid of looters coming in their communities, we've got people talking about garden, standing on their rooftops, guarding their neighborhoods. I know that I'm not going to take a stroll through the neighborhood at night. I know that it's not safe and I don't feel free. And when we look at the streets of this country that are going on fire, and you look at the anger and frustration around the idea of whether black lives actually matter or whether there'll be justice for brutal televised murders of people by police officers, on camera, whether there'll be accountability for the bystanders, whether at some point we'll realize it's not fair that so many people have to walk this earth and never actually feel free. We can't separate critical thinking about problems without digging down into the complex issues involving race. So if we start realizing that as we are considering critical thinking and we're centering race as a component of that, it's the same way you can't solve any problem without acknowledging perspectives and different angles and different stakeholders. But if you're going to go through this process without acknowledging race, you're missing a really important part of the puzzle. So here are three things that you can start to do differently so that you can do a better job of centering race as an important factor in your critical thinking process, especially if you're involved in any way, shape, or form in changing any real world issue around us. And my hope is that if you listen to this podcast, it's because you're either directly in that position as an educator, as a parent, as a leader, or you want to be in that position and you want to be a part of making a change that matters in our world. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to reject the myth of colorblindness. Now, I know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said during his famous I Have a Dream speech that his dream, part of his dream was that his kids will grow up and they wouldn't be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Yep, and people love quoting that over and over and over again. However, what he was really getting to was this point that it's not about not seeing color, because unless you are legally colorblind, y'all see color. Y'all see on this little podcast thing, my little headshot, like I am a black man. There's no denying that. I didn't have to come out and make an announcement that I am African-American. 
you kind of got the picture. So it's not an issue about whether you don't see color. It's the issue of, can you be color kind, not color blind? Can you be color kind? Can you be aware? Can you acknowledge that if you have two African-American students in your entire school, that they might go through something, that you might want to check in on them? You might want to be a little bit concerned about that and check and take a look and see why that might matter. If you're being colorblind, you could just look at a school and be like, yeah, this is a good school. If you're being color kind, that means you're being color aware. You're being color focused and you're breaking that down by racial subgroups. The same way we look at, you know, who's in special education, who are English language learners, who are students in poverty. We want to separate it because if we are not paying attention and any single group is being left behind, then my colorblindness does not serve anyone. We don't exist on the average. The average is a myth. If you've got one foot in a pot of boiling water and the other foot is in a pot of ice cold water on average, are you comfortable? Stop being colorblind. The second part, after you stop being colorblind, is acknowledge that you have privilege. And let me tell you something. Do not turn this off and be like, oh, I had a hard life. I don't want to hear anything about white privilege. Stop it. You can have a hard life all day, all night. But the color of your skin is the part where you got to start thinking about that does not become an additional barrier. You're not walking around with that as an additional barrier. And here's one thing that I would recommend for anyone that's struggling with this concept of privilege. Do me a favor. Take one day, one week, some stacked, concentrated period of time and just take notes. Write it down on your phone, write it down on a pad and call it a privilege log. And I want you to note all the times in a day that you realize that whether it's the fact that you might be a male, whether it's the fact that you might be heterosexual, whether it's the fact that you don't have any physical impairments that make you have to question whether or not a store is going to be accessible to you. I didn't really have to think about this, but I grew up in New York City, right? Grew up in Brooklyn, went to high school in the Bronx, and I remember I just would go, 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 go. I had a friend who had a physical impairment and needed to use a motorized wheelchair to get around. And I remember like, oh yeah, we're going to go over here. We're going to go over here. He's like, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to work. I don't think that train station has a working elevator. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't think that place actually has like a good ramp. Like it's technically compliant, but like a lot of times it's not actually safe, even though it's compliant. I'm like, oh, yeah, never had to think about that. Never had to think about that. So when you start thinking about privilege, it takes a little bit of stepping outside of yourself and understanding how you experiencing the world might differ from the way that others experience the world. And I want you to really focus on this when it comes to race. I want you to think about whether or not you've ever had to say, you know what, kids, you shouldn't play with water guns because... I'm afraid somebody might think that that's a real gun and shoot you. I want you to really understand what privilege is, how it extends to you, and not to get defensive about it, but just accept it as a reality. Because the next step, after you ceased being colorblind, after you rejected that myth and you decided to acknowledge your own privilege, is to understand how you can actually use that privilege within your scope of power, your position, your authority, to show up for those who do not have that same privilege. 
have a colleague of mine. His name is Dr. Billy Snow. And Billy Snow is an amazing human being. He is a white man. And Billy Snow, he actually is doing some work on this exact topic, helping white people leverage their privilege. Because one of the things that he and I talked about is this idea that there is a difference between an ally and a co-conspirator. An ally, you know, you could change your hashtags on social media. You can put a profile pick up showing that you're in solidarity. You can like all the Facebook things that sound good. You could go back and forth about things that you really care about, about Black Lives Matter and whatever have you. But if you're not actually using your privilege, if you're not actually thinking about your power, position, and authority to do something about it, then I'm not really sure that you're actually anything more than just an ally. And we don't necessarily need allies in the fight of racial justice. What we really need is co-conspirators. We need people that are going to take some blows so we don't have to take all of them. So what does that mean? What is showing up like that means? It means identifying like, all right, what is your scope of power? What areas can you speak up about where you might not have normally spoken out, but maybe you've got a colleague of color and you could say something so that person doesn't always have to be the race person. There's all these videos going viral right now of protests across the country where you see a black person getting attacked or about to get attacked by a police officer and you see a white person stepping in front, taking that blow. I think about what that means in leadership. I want to go back to Billy Snow because Billy Snow really has a story that inspires me. He's at a point in his career where he's working for an African-American superintendent on a really unpopular equity issue. And he goes so hard in front of this board saying all sorts of things to this majority white board that the superintendent would never get to say. Calls them all the way out. Essentially speaks so crazy that there's a question about whether or not he's going to keep his job. But he fought like hell because it was a moment where black kids needed as many real advocates, real co-conspirators on their behalf who weren't afraid of losing their job, who weren't afraid of just being comfortable and were willing to take a blow so that their black superintendent didn't necessarily have to take that blow himself. So understand how you can leverage your privilege. Think about your organizations, your roles, your parent groups. What can you do right now to start leveraging your privilege on behalf of the folks that you want to fight for? Because we already know we are not going to solve any of these real world problems without getting down to the racial elements of it. So why not figure out how to leverage your privilege to make it less unjust? You have the power to do it. So the last part, after you're colorblind, after you reject the myth of being colorblind, after you acknowledge that you have privilege and you understand how to use that privilege to transition from being a mere ally to being a true co-conspirator, I want to ask you to start with yourself. Take a look in the mirror and start with yourself. And I know you're like, wait a minute. I just stayed on for this whole podcast. And he's going to come at me with some Michael Jackson man in the mirror stuff. And I'm like, yes, I am. I am. This is a man in the mirror moment, okay? I'm starting with the man in the mirror and I'm asking him to make that change. And I'm not being cheesy on purpose. I'm being honest. Because what I don't want to happen is you read a couple of tweets 
you listen to this podcast, and now all of a sudden, you are the racial master of all the racial things that have ever happened in the history of racial things. You're leading forums and discussions, and you've become the go-to person for everybody about this. Like, no. Step back for a second. The person that needs the most professional development is you. The person that needs the most reflection is you. And when I say you, let me tell you something. I'm not just talking about white people. I'm not just talking about people of color. I'm talking about everybody. I want to be honest with you and be real with you about something for a second. If you start looking inside of yourself and understanding the way you do things, check the data, check your own data, check your own feedback, you would recognize some things that might be hard to admit. It is hard for me to admit that as a first-year teacher, a black male educator in Washington, D.C., teaching mostly black students, including a ton of black males, I can tell you unequivocally, I showed explicit bias towards black male students. I make sure you heard me correctly. Colin Seal, black male educator, I showed explicit bias towards my black male students. It might have been coming from a decent place, maybe, because in my mind, maybe I was over-preparing them for an unduly harsh world. So if they do a piece of paper, I would completely lose it. I would escalate things way beyond the point they should have been escalated. But two months in, I started looking at some of my video footage, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I am part of the problem. And you know, Dr. Ibram Kendi writes in How to Be an Anti-Racist, he writes that this statement about like, oh, well, blacks can't be racist because racism is prejudice plus power is not really complete. True. Like, if you don't have that power, a lot of times your prejudice doesn't make a difference, right? So like saying that black people can be prejudiced uh, or racist against white people doesn't make sense using that definition. But blacks can still be racist. If you are upholding and confirming and acting in accordance to a systemically racist system, then you are being a racist. So I think about that all the time of like, if I fail to start with myself, to do my own work and recognize that I need it to step back, I need it to make sure that I understood that like, not all these kids are the same. Like, I, I got to stop being colorblind. I got to stop being color mean because I was almost not even color kind. I was the exact opposite. I got to recognize I've got privileges. There's things that I could do within my power as a classroom teacher, to connect my kids to things that they normally might not have access to. I have it in my power to calm it down. I have it in my power. Instead of showing tough love, I can show love love. I can show them that it's okay for a male figure in your life to be patient with you, to lift you up, to tell you you've got this, to say, you know what? Why don't you go get a drink of water, man? It's going to be all right. Why don't we go talk to the counselor? It's going to be all right. Young man, I have your back, and I want you to know that. These are the things that are impossible if I didn't do that reflection. So I wonder, what would be possible if you did this reflection? If you acknowledge all the different ways where you showed up, and you caught yourself being colorblind, instead of color aware and color kind. If you were hostile to the notion that you had privilege, what if instead you really sat there and were intentional, you did a privilege log and you started taking note of all the ways your privilege, particularly around race, gives you opportunities you didn't do any work to earn? And how do you use the fact that you have that privilege on a way 
to be a part of not just being an ally for racial justice, but being a true co-conspirator. Because if you're going to do this work, it's got to start with you. Race must be a part of critical thinking about any real-world problem because race is one of our most significant real-world problems. But it doesn't have to be. I hope that after this podcast and with everything going on, that you all can commit to not just being an ally, but true co-conspirators in the fight for racial justice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Think Law Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast by clicking on the subscribe option on whatever platform you're listening to. Thank you for helping us create a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good. To get the latest and greatest updates about our work, please join our mailing list by texting THINKLAW to 66866. Thank you for checking out the Think Law Podcast. But did you know you can dig even deeper? My first book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework to teach critical thinking to all students, is now available on Amazon or many of your favorite book websites. So please check it out and be a part of our critical thinking revolution. Thank you so much for listening to the Think Law Podcast.